and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we focus on the United States' number one rival, the People's Republic of China, also known as the PRC, and how utilizing the latest technology is the best way to dissuade their imperialist plans. We're going to look at how China has modernized their military, why emerging technologies, including utilizing artificial intelligence, is key, and whether or not it all means a larger defense budget is needed. And joining us to break it all down is Brian Clark. Brian Clark is a senior fellow and director at the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute. He's a former Navy submariner and senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, where he led studies for the DOD Office of Net Assessment, Office of the Secretary of Defense, and Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency on the New Technologies and the Future of Warfare. Brian, a pleasure to have you on She Thinks today. Great to be here, Beverly. <laughs> and so I want to let everybody know that you do have a new report out. It's entitled Campaigning to Dissuade, Applying Emergent, Emerging Technologies to Engage and Succeed in the Information Age Security Competition. People can find that on Hudson.org. It's in-depth but important research. And you do make this case for using new technologies and warfare. We're going to get to that. But I want to start with some of the specifics which led to this report to be to begin with, and that is where China is specifically. You say in this report that they are the most comprehensive economic and security rival since Great Britain during the 19th century. I realize this is a big topic, but can you expand on that? You bet. Uh, I, I think, you know, the what we need to start to acknowledge in the United States is that China is a peer of the United States. So it uh, economically is nearly as large as the United States. Uh, obviously, as population, it's much larger than the United States. Uh, it has a larger military uh, than the United States. It may not be as capable in certain respects, but it's certainly uh, as it's certainly larger than the U.S. military. Um, and I think there's a lot of technology development in China that certainly is on par with or exceeds what's available in the United States. So, so in a lot of ways, you know, China is a peer, and I think that you know U.S. Uh, policymakers need to uh, embrace that idea, start to acknowledge it, and digest it, and get used to it. Um, and start rethinking how they approach uh, deterrence and dissuasion, you know, given that uh, state of affairs. Um, I think we've gotten used to, since the Cold War ended, being the, the, the big dog, you know, so the U.S. has had a foreign policy that's largely primacist, you know, is what we in, in, the, in the world of uh, strategy talk about, where the U.S. tries to retain its dominant position militarily, uh, economically, diplomatically against its rivals. Um, and that's just not possible today, given you know, where China's trajectory is going. Uh, I think some people still want to hold on to the idea that the U.S. can be dominant, but we're kind of at the end of dominance. And we need to rethink uh, how we approach deterrence, given that we now need to think uh, that we're fighting a pure competitor. And with that mentality, how hard is that to bring that to, let's say, lawmakers or even to the average person to talk about the rise of China and its ability to compete as a peer? Do a lot of people just sit in this land of wanting to be comfortable and thinking of the United States right. as dominant? Yeah, as a lot of people, like, you know, they got very comfortable with that idea after the Cold War ended. Um, a lot of, you know, national security experts, you know, sort of embraced that idea. And, and, you know, it's hard for them to to come off of that. Part of it is it just requires a completely different way of approaching problems such as uh, deterring aggression, 
military operational concepts because you have to think about yourself, you know, fighting somebody who is really on par with your own forces. So you can't just overwhelm them with your technological or numerical advantage, which is what we've been used to doing. Um, and I think, uh, you know, in the general public, um, though, I think there's actually more of a realization of this. People out in the street kind of recognize that China is a uh, pretty large power, pretty capable power. Obviously, China is something that's a concern for uh, lots of uh, people in terms of how their business fares in the international competitive environment, right? So I think actually the, the civilian population is much more ready to embrace this idea than in a lot of ways, the national security experts who are supposedly more versed in it. Um, so I think we've, we've had an easier time making this case outside of the, the Pentagon, if you will, than inside. Um, but one thing is, I mean, some of that's changing, right? So Rand, um, just after our report came out, came out with a report that talked about how uh, the U.S. is sort of losing its dominant position militarily and now needs to think differently about how it approaches uh, deterrence and, and, and defeating aggression. So I think, you know, we're seeing the think tank world come around to this idea. And I think within the Pentagon, you know, the folks that work these issues are realizing it as well. So we're having a groundswell of support for the idea that dominance has ended, we need to come up with some new ideas for how we're going to deter aggression. And I think we have some real life examples as well. Obviously, mm -hmm. there's the situation with Hong Kong where you had China taking over Hong Kong. Of course, the conversation now is about Taiwan. And so there's a right. huge focus there. There's been a lot of back and forth among the Biden administration on what our actual posture is in reference to Taiwan. From your expert opinion, what is the proper diplomacy for Taiwan and a way to deter China from doing anything. Yeah, so um, you know, part of what, uh, there's, there's kind of two approaches you could take to defending Taiwan. So one is this idea of denial. So um, the kind of predominant US strategy is we're going to deny China the ability to successfully invade Taiwan. Uh, and what that means is we are going to show China that we have the ability to intervene, stop an invasion, make it unsuccessful. Um, that worked for a long time, you know, especially back in the 90s and 2000s when we really were dominant uh, as a military power. Um, now, as we've entered the 2010s and now the 2020s, uh, that dominant position is fading. Our ability to tell China that we could deny them the ability to invade Taiwan is losing credibility. Um, and so we need to start shifting to some uh, uh, other approach that, you know, focuses instead of trying to drive the uncertainty of the Chinese leadership. So instead of saying, we're going to deny this uh, invasion, we want you to be certain of that. We're trying to drive certainty into the minds of the Chinese leadership. We need to pivot now and focus on driving uncertainty <laughs> into their decision-making so they don't feel comfortable with uh, the likelihood of success uh, if they were to invade Taiwan, which you know is it seems like a subtlety, but it's very different to you know, try to make your opponent certain he will fail versus making your opponent uncertain regarding he'll succeed, whether he'll succeed or not. Um, and if you're driving uncertainty, then what's really important is understanding what is your opponent's uh, concerns? What are the things that are going to make them more uncertain? And also, you know, what is your estimate of how uncertain they need to be to not choose to act? Um, you know, so in the old days, you know, if we were dominant, we didn't have to worry about what China thought, really. We could just show them that we would you know, dominate them and win. Um, now we have to actually worry about what the Chinese think and focus instead on shaping their thinking, understanding their thinking, uh, and driving the uncertainty, which requires us to be much more interactive with the Chinese uh, and have a way of measuring and understanding you know, what their perceptions might be, um, which is a much more interactive uh, mode you know, than we've had in the past. And you studied warfare. Obviously, the state of warfare has changed. Technology has changed so much of this. We've even seen that with Ukraine. We see this with use right. of, of drones. 
when we look at what China has developed, what the United States has developed, what type of technology is most important in warfare? And I think you said at the start of this that China hasn't necessarily superseded us in the technological aspect of this, but they've gained a lot. So what is technology, emerging technologies look like in warfare? Yeah, so um, in, especially when you think about deterrence, you know, the technologies we're talking about here are uh, technologies that give us the ability to attack China's strategy rather than attacking their forces. So the, the, you know, the old way we would have fought this is to say, well, we're going to bring in uh, capabilities that are going to demonstrate to the Chinese that we will be able to sink a bunch of their amphibious ships, you kill a bunch of their troops as they you know hit the shore or, or before they even leave China. Um, and then that's going to show that they're going to fail. We're going to make them certain they'll fail. Um, now that we're focusing instead on driving uncertainty, well, the way you drive uncertainty is, you know, you have to start demonstrating that maybe they don't understand exactly how you're going to operate, how you're going to fight. So you have to have a force that's much more uh, adaptable, agile, uh, recomposable. So our forces need the ability to uh, posture and, and operate in a lot of different ways. So by increasing the adaptability of our force, we increase their uncertainty with regard to how we're going to fight, um, which is different than saying we're going to go out there and demonstrate exactly how we're going to win and make them certain that they know that. Uh, and so that that need for a more agile force uh, requires you to have uh, you know, unmanned systems uh, that are going to be available in much larger numbers. So this idea of moving to a force that's much more a much larger proportion of it's uncrewed. Um, so you've got cheaper, more expendable, more numerous uncrewed vehicles out there that you could compose in lots of different combinations that you can use in lots of different tactics. That creates a lot of uncertainty for the Chinese. Um, the other thing is um, creating uh, the ability to affect Chinese, uh, what we call sensing and sense making. So can you confuse China's ability to see and understand what's going on around uh, Taiwan, for example? Um, that involves you know, space-based <laughs> capabilities, it involves electronic warfare, uh, it involves um, you know, counter uh, sensing capabilities, and it also involves cyber. So being able to attack some of their command and control systems to inject um, confusing signals that make them distrust their own sensors or distrust what their understanding of the situation is. Um, so, so you're attacking their ability to understand and make sense of what they're seeing, um, both in terms of the sensors and, the, and the, the technologies they use, and then also in terms of the forces that we use and how they're operated. So it creates a very confusing picture. If we can do that in peacetime, we start to make the Chinese second guess whether they're really in a position to successfully invade at an acceptable cost. Um, the other area technology comes into play is in protraction. So we, we highlight the, the fact that in, our, in the strategy we lay out, that if we can demonstrate the ability to stretch out a fight with China um, into months or even years, and that we can continue to, to contain, continue to ep, uh, maintain the efforts, sustain Taiwan, sustain our military forces out there, um, it turns what China wants to be a very short, sharp war uh, into a protracted slog, you know, so like Ukraine. So, you know, Russia was prepared and positioned to do this very lightning strike, take over Ukraine. It's over before the West can really react. Uh, and then they present us with this fait accompli. You know, we have to respond to now the fact that Ukraine is part of Russia uh, and then negotiate for some kind of settlement. 
Well, that didn't work out. And so now we've got this protracted conflict that the, U the U.S. and other Western countries are supporting Ukraine in. Um, we could do the same thing in Taiwan. Can we demonstrate the ability with technologies like you know, modular weapons or um, the ability to pre-position materials forward with the ability to use additive manufacturing to build new weapons and systems? Um, can we leverage allies and their manufacturing capacity to support you know, that war effort in the Pacific, just like we've been doing in Europe? Um, those things would help to demonstrate to China that not only is there an uncertain likelihood of success, that uncertainty is going to grow because there's a likelihood for protraction and that, you know, China and its government are probably not in a position to manage a protracted conflict like we're seeing in Ukraine. And so with with this, with the technology, you even mentioned unmanned systems. This leads to ethics questions. People often will go to this and say, well, what does that mean ethically when you're thought, thinking about not just deterrence, but also fighting wars with unmanned machines? Right. Is this machine right. against machines? How do you factor in the ethics to this, especially right. utilizing artificial intelligence and the fear that some people have that the machines are going to take over? Right, right. So the um, the machines you know won't take over. Part of the problem is that the machines are you know, dependent upon us still <laughs> to be able to you know, provide guidance, provide, you know, thinking, you know, looking forward into the future, um, and also to provide them, you know, direction. So, so the machines still have a lot of limitations in terms of how they're able to fight effectively, but how they can be used is by um, using uncrewed systems um, that you can get in volume that are more expendable, that you're willing to put into a very dangerous situation and potentially have them get lost or destroyed. Um, you can create this problem for the Chinese of mass and you know, this problem of uh, uncertainty regarding how those unmanned systems are going to fight. Um, and you can use artificial intelligence to help those uh, uncrewed systems find the targets that they're looking for while still having a person you know, in the loop, as we say. So um, you can use artificial intelligence to allow the computer vision systems of a uncrewed surface vessel, for example, a little unmanned boat, um, you know, to allow it to be able to see a ship and understand, is that a ship that's carrying troops as an amphibious transport, or is that a ferry that you know, might be on a civilian you know, pleasure cruise or something? Unlikely that there's any civilians in this wartime environment, but you can you can allow AI can help you to train these computer vision systems to do a pretty good job of understanding exactly what the target might be that they're looking at, and then a person can get involved at you know the point where then we have to determine okay do we have to go up we think this is what the target is do we go after that target yes no and then a person makes that decision now in a lot of ways that person doesn't have any more information than the computer does. But at least the person's accountable, you know, so the person will have to stand up and, and you know, argue or, you know, justify their decision or be accountable for that decision if it, if it goes wrong. Um, and that's the main thing that U.S. Uh, military leaders are focused on is can we have a human that's accountable for the actions of these machines because they were able to look at what the machine saw and make a determination as to whether that was a target that they needed to engage, which is really not that much different than how things are today, you know, with our non-AI force. You know, you have a, a video picture that comes on your screen in the cockpit of an airplane that's generated by a computer. You make a determination as to whether to shoot that target or not. Um, so it's really not that much different than how you would do it if you had an AI-enabled computer making that recommendation to you. Um, the other way that AI comes into it is in building the plans themselves. Um, so this is something you've seen a lot in, or we've seen a lot in Ukraine, um, where artificial intelligence uh, computer decision aids are being used to 
formulate a plan that's going to be effective in taking out a target that an enemy is trying to defend. So we could use AI to do this command and control function so we could manage large numbers of unmanned systems that maybe are going after an amphibious fleet that might be trying to attack Taiwan. So artificial intelligence comes into play at that command and control level, you know, as well as down at that tactical level where we're trying to actually attack a target. I think when we hear about these emerging technologies, a lot of times people think of dollar signs. It's going to cost so much. We spend so much on defense. We see Congress debate the National Defense Authorization Act on a regular basis this summer being included. What does this mean when it comes to cost? Yeah, so uncrewed systems, obviously the new technology, you know, it's additive, right? So we're, this is something new that we don't already do. Um, but there's, a, in a lot of ways, we could start to trade, you know, our traditional systems for these uncrewed systems. Um, it's not something that, you know, the traditional military folks like to hear, but you could trade one, you know, Virginia class attack submarine that costs three and a half billion dollars for hundreds, if not thousands, but at least hundreds of uncrewed vehicles that could uh, be probably more effective in stopping an invasion of Taiwan. So if that's the thing we're really worried about, um, you know, do we want to make that trade? Uh, or do we want to trade one guided missile destroyer for hundreds of uncrewed vehicles that would be more effective in stopping an invasion of Taiwan? Um, those are the trades that are available. Um, I would argue that um, you know, even if we don't make the trade quite so stark in terms of crude versus uncrewed, these uncrewed systems um, are much more affordable you know, going forward. So maybe we you know, reduce the number of new crude vehicles we get and, and increase the number of uncrewed. Uh, the reason that they're cheaper, though, is um, obviously they're individually cheaper because they're smaller. There's no people on board. They're less sophisticated. They, they do less functions. Um, you know, a, a Reaper uncrewed air vehicle does performs fewer functions than like an F-16 does. Um, but that's partly because there's no people in it. So it doesn't have to defend itself necessarily. Um, but also that uncrewed vehicle, if you're not using it, you can put it in a warehouse. You can box it up, put it in a warehouse, and it just sits there. The uncrewed aircraft, you know, the F-16, you have to maintain it. You have to fly it around periodically. Um, it costs money, even if it's just sitting on the flight line, because you can't let it, you know, go, you, unless you send it to the boneyard, uh, in which case it will not be available to you. Um, so there's no, there, there, you don't have the same option with crewed vessels or vehicles to just park it, <laughs> uh, because you have to maintain them. They're delicate, high-end machines. The other thing is... Um, to train people, you don't need a training organization with a bunch of vehicles and people associated with it. So for our air forces, you've got squadrons of airplanes and people whose only job is to train new pilots. <laughs> um, so they, you know, we have a whole, you know, about 20% of our air fleet is devoted to training the pilots for the rest of the air fleet. Uh, so you have this huge demand for airplanes, people, money getting spent on that. With these uncrewed vehicles, you don't have that because the uncrewed vehicle operator gets trained on a simulator because they don't actually deal with the real vehicle at all. Um, so they just train on the simulator, get qualified, um, and then you don't need to buy extra vehicles for the training pipeline. So you save money kind of on both ends in terms of the uncrewed vehicles. Procurement cost itself is lower. Its sustainment cost is lower. Um, you can park them and put them in a box if you don't need them for now and you break them out when you do need them. Um, so you get that flexibility from them. Obviously, you can't replace your entire military with uncrewed vehicles, but you could replace a portion of it and yield major benefits for specific situations like um, Ukraine in the Black Sea, and they're using them pretty effectively there, or China attacking Taiwan and Taiwan Strait, again, a pretty confined body of water where uncrewed vehicles could be pretty effective. 
And when I hear all of this, it obviously sounds like it's a good plan, but it requires a lot of strategy, a lot of moving parts, a lot of people making decisions, a lot of approval, Congress signing off on it. When you propose these types of changes or approaches to our military, especially when it comes to emerging technologies, do you find that many lawmakers are on board or is this a a tough climb? It's not a tough climb in terms of you know, making the or to making the point that uh, we need to bring on more uncrewed systems to you know expand the size of our force, give us more options, uh, enable some more flexibility in terms of how we fight. Um, kind of where it breaks down is the the question is okay. Well, how does this actually? How do you actually use them to deter? And then how do you use them to you know fight? I think they have an idea in general, kind of how you might use them to fight. Um, but the question comes in, well, how do these uncrewed systems help us to deter aggression? Um, because, uh, you know, do we just have them floating around all the time like we do with our manned ships uh, or are, are driving around like our manned aircraft? Or do we have to do something different? And that's kind of where our study really focused was on what's the strategy or the concept that you use to employ this more adaptable force for the proper for, for the purpose of inter, for uh, the purpose of deterrence, um, and the, the the way that we do that is we propose that we start to uh, create surprises, you know, for the Chinese. So, like I said, part of this, or really the central part of this strategy, is to create uncertainty, you know, for the Chinese leadership regarding their likelihood of success in scenarios that we don't want them to pursue, like an invasion of Taiwan. So, creating that uncertainty might mean we start using these uncrewed systems and their crude pa- counterparts in new you know, demonstrations, operational concepts, exercises where we demonstrate, you know, different ways they might fight or operate. Um, We demonstrate new capabilities or new mission systems like, you know, new radars, new jammers, new sensors that we put onto these uncrewed vehicles and just put them out there and start creating these surprises. So by creating these unexpected events or these unexpected force uh, compositions, we create for the Chinese uh, uncertainty with regard to how we're actually going to fight. We also then create uh, observable events. So when we surprise um, Chinese intelligence gathering, um, we should see a response in terms of, well, what, what did that, did they care about that or did they not care about that? Um, and that response is actually very revealing with regard to what their areas are of neuralgia. What are the things they're actually really concerned about? Or it creates um, you know, uh, ways that we can understand things that maybe they aren't that concerned about. So we show you know, some dramatically different way of doing uh, ship attack in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, and there's like no reaction you know, from the Chinese. That would suggest, well, maybe they weren't that fixated on an invasion of Taiwan anyway. Maybe that seemed to be a lower priority scenario. Maybe there's other things they're thinking are more likely. Um, and we can dig into that. But we can use this process of kind of probing and, and response from the Chinese to better understand their perceptions uh, and help us to shape our future efforts. And that gets to this idea of campaigning. So this this probe response and, and continued action is part of a campaigning effort. And so that's something that the Department of Defense has said is a, you know, one of the three main lines of their strategy is, is campaigning. And so much of this is about evolving to the times and where warfare is. Before you go, I do have one question for you. It's a little bit of a curveball. But I think because of your experience, I wanted to ask, and by the way, thank you for your service. You did serve our country for years in the Navy. What is it like to be a submariner? I'm curious how long you were down. Under, what was the longest time you were underwater? And what is it like being in those close quarters for an extended amount of time? Um, so uh, about the longest time we were underwater at one time was like three months, okay. um, you know, during one deployment. Uh, so normally, even on a six month deployment, you'll you know come up 
you know, to, to the surface, you know, either in the open ocean just to get up on the surface and, and you know, see some uh, sun and fresh air, um, or you'll pull into port. Generally, you pull into port somewhere, so you, you get some opportunities to get off the ship. Um, but yeah, three months is about the max that I think normally that's what you'd see. I mean, if you go longer than that, that's a big deal. Um, and then um, you just get used to being, you know, in close quarters like that because it's just like any other you know, job. You get kind of wrapped up in the work you have to do and the, the tasks that have to get completed. There's, it's busy. There's a lot to do. It's a small crew on a really complicated ship. So there's a lot of work that has to get done. So you kind of lose track of the fact that you're, you're all jammed into this one little tube. <laughs> Instead, you kind of focus on getting the work done and, and only, you know, rarely do you kind of think about you know, where you are and, and how, you know, claustrophobic it might be. <laughs> And do you, and last question for you, do you think of uh, warfare on the seas as something that still is a likely thing, especially when we look at China and their yeah. activity in the South China Sea, and of course where Taiwan is, do you think this is a place where we need to beef up our military? I, I think it is likely. I mean, you see with the war in Ukraine, obviously, most of the action's happening on the ground. Um, but there's there's been naval warfare there. You know, there's been several, you know, Ukraine lost a lot of ships early in the war. Ukraine's been attacking Russian ships. Obviously, the Moskva, the flagship of the Black Sea fleet was killed early on or sunk uh, very early on. Um, so warfare still happens at sea. And I think, you know, in a non-European context, you know, then most of the war would happen at sea. Um, I think it's even though an invasion of Taiwan is unlikely in my mind, uh, what is likely is China trying to do some more actions that'll coerce Taiwan. So a blockade, uh, a quarantine, kind of like we did during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, they could take some islands that sort of are outlying islands of Taiwan. There's a lot of ways they can put pressure on Taiwan uh, from the sea that don't involve an invasion. And that would get into some kind of small scale confrontations with U.S. or other allied forces. So I think you know, we will see conflict on the sea over the next decade. I, I just think it's not going to take the form of an invasion, counter invasion. It'll take more of the form of blockade running and um, you know, trying to push people off of islands and that kind of thing. Well, the way we think about warfare, especially with emerging technologies, is so important. I invite people to go to Hudson.org to look at this report you put out, Campaigning to Dissuade is what it is called. So I encourage people to go there. But Brian, thank you so much for your service and also for joining us on She Thinks. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for joining us. Before you go, IWF wants you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting IWF.org backslash donate. That's IWF.org backslash donate. Plus, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or review. It does help, and we'd love it if you shared this episode so your friends can know where they can find more She thinks. From all of us here at IWF, thanks for watching.